All right. John chapter 20, we're going to read the first 18 verses. Um, Tony cheated me out. He's taking the rest of the chapter. Um, now, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. Then she ran and came to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved and said to them, They have taken away the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. Peter therefore went out and the other disciple and were going to the tomb. And so they both ran together, and the other disciple outran Peter and came to the tomb first. And he, stooping down and looking in, saw the linen cloths lying there, yet he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb, and he saw the linen cloths lying there, and the handkerchief that had been around his head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded together in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who came to the tomb first, went in also, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not, they did not know the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. Then the disciples went away again to their own homes. But Mary stood outside by the tomb, weeping. And as she wept, she stooped down and looked into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting, one at the head and the other at the feet, where the body of Jesus had lain. Then they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, Because they have taken away my Lord. Notice that? My Lord. And I do not know where they have laid him. Now when she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there and did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? And she, supposing him to be the gardener, said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. And Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him, Rabboni, which is to say, Teacher, and Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to my Father. But go to my brethren and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, and to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene came and told the disciples that she had seen the Lord, and they had spoken these things to her. Interesting passage set before us. You know, Mike Tyson once said about boxing, and fighting, he says, you know, everyone's got a plan until they get punched. And I don't think it's any different for these uh, disciples and those who follow Jesus. They had envisioned that Jesus was going to set up the kingdom. He was already upending the religious order, so to speak. And their plans went out the window. Again, we've arrived here at John at a place where it is the epicenter and core of our faith. For the disciples and those who followed Jesus, to them, this was the end. But in fact, it was the beginning. And as many of you already know, this is supposed to be a joyous time. This is the Passover. It was a time of uh, commemoration uh, to recall God's deliverance of the Israelites out of their enslavement from uh, the house of bondage, that being Egypt. Uh, and every year... The, year, uh, the Jews were commanded to celebrate this occasion by reenacting the events leading up to their deliverance. It was a time 
where the whole nation would gather together. All the work was to, to be halted, and Jews from all over the world were, would pour into Jerusalem. However, for some, this Passover would never be the same. You know, again, this is a time, like our Christmas, right? We get together with family. It's supposed to be a great time. But this Passover was never going to be the same for those who followed him. You guys know after Jesus celebrated the Passover meal, he said, hey guys, let's, let's go across, let's go to the garden. And as they went across the little valley there, up into the garden of Gethsemane, they sang hymns. And as they were there celebrating this joyous moment, all of a sudden the, the approach of the troops came and the disciples witnessed the arrest of Jesus. You know, I began to think about this. You know, it's, this is a very traumatic event, you know, um, because things just started to happen at a rapid pace, like a domino effect. And first here they see his, his arrest. The next thing you know, he's being publicly executed and then he's being entombed just like that in succession, one after another. And, you know, for me, as I began to think about this, you know, I think about traumatic events in my life. I remember early on as a kid, my dad, uh, he took me to, uh, to Mexico to visit my grandfather, who I had never met. And we get on this bus, and we're on this bus like forever. And we finally get there, and uh, I meet his brother. And, you know, I'm thinking, man, look at his brother. It's like these crystal green eyes, you know. And, and it's just kind of a cool thing when you, you meet family members, right? You just If you've never met them before, you're kind of looking for any type of uh, similarities. Well, here we are, we're on the beach and, you know, his, his brother's already older. And the next thing you know, I'm, you know, I'm playing with some of the relatives. I turn around and my dad is being arrested. He's there. They, they have him handcuffed and they're putting him in the car. And, and I'm, as a kid, I, that was traumatizing for me. You know, uh, I never thought I'd ever see my dad arrested. My dad was really, he really was a sweet guy. He didn't, he didn't drink. He didn't cuss. Matter of fact, when he, when he died, we asked my mom, what, what are some of the things you remember about my dad? So one thing he never did was he never said a bad word. I said, wow. Unlike you, huh, mom? Okay. <laughs> uh, but to, to, just two different people. But um, to me, that was traumatizing. And I can only imagine the disciples, they're, they're with him and, and they're fellowshipping with him. And here's this Passover celebration. He gets arrested and he's being fastened to a cross and taken down and now he's being entombed. And what was it like for them? Pretty traumatic event. Now, all four Gospels underscore the resurrection. Yet each Gospel writer gives us a different perspective regarding the resurrection. You know, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they're called the synoptic gospels because they're very similar in nature. John, however, he, he gives us a different vantage point. He omits some of the stories we see in, in some of the other gospels. So we're going to look at uh, two areas tonight. We're going to look at the empty tomb in verses 1 through 10, and we're going to look at the appearance in verses 11 through 18. Notice here in verse 1, this was the first day of the week. It says, no, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb early. So, so we see here, it's, it's the first day of the week, which is a Sunday. It's right after the Sabbath. More importantly, it's after the Passover celebration. And here we're presented with Mary Magdalene. Later, we're going to run into Peter and John as they're confronted with the empty tomb. Mary, we are told, is from Magdala. 
Magdala meaning tower or castle. It's a town on the western shore of the Sea of Galilee. It's about three miles south of Capernaum. It is a well-known fishing village. As a matter of fact, they made textiles there. Um, It was actually rediscovered back in 2009, so it's a recent discovery. Mary Magdalene is mentioned in all four Gospels. She is mentioned 14 times, and she is mentioned in every aspect of the resurrection. In eight of the 14 references, she is the head of the pack. There's only one other time where Mary, the mother of Jesus, is actually sequentially ahead of her. But Mary is always noted first. And John, I believe, draws our attention to her over the importance of her interaction with Jesus, that, the kind of influence that she had. Luke introduces us to Mary in Luke chapter 8, verse 2. And we find her description there as one out of whom seven demons came out. In Mark 16, 9, we're told of Mary Magdalene that she is the one whom Jesus first appeared to, out of whom seven demons were cast out. Cast out. That's the word ekbalo. Ekbalo ek means out. Balo means to cast or throw out, which means to throw out. And I don't know how Jesus threw out the demons. I don't know if he just gazed at her. I don't know if perhaps he said the word. All I know is he threw out the demons, and that's all that matters. Seven unclean spirits, demons. Not one, not two, but seven demons. Evidently, she opened herself up to something. I don't know what she did. I don't know what she she opened herself up to, that this occurred, or what she was involved with. But whatever she did, it took hold of her life which paved the way for these seven demons to enter her. Demonic possession. You know, demonic possession, it it intrigues me, only because I really don't have much experience or had much experience in this area. And frankly, I don't want that kind of experience. Uh, I've had had some circumstances occur in my life, and and believe me, I want no part of it. The Lord can just deal with that part. the most that I know of demonic possession is obviously found in the scripture, not in the movies. Okay? Uh, and it seems like it was uh, prevalent in Jesus' day. And I think it's prevalent in our day too. I'm sure when we go to Starbucks, someone's just possessed. It's got to be possessed. Um, you know, I used to think when I used to go visit my dad, my dad was in a place where he needed care. And I would walk down the hallways and you see people kind of, hate to say, you know, uh, they look like they're special needs. But I wonder how many of those people may have been possessed. Because, you know, we read through the scriptures about those, those people who, you know, that one kid who tried to keep jumping into the fire or tried to drown himself, didn't have control over his body. And I believe, you know, drugs are a gateway for possession. Uh, again, just my conviction. I, I think it, it lowers our defenses. Uh, it softens us up for this kind of activity. You know, with the recent uh, legalization of marijuana, I wouldn't be surprised to see an explosion of demonic activity. I mean, just wait. The next generation to see what that holds. Our kids, what they're exposed to. You know, people say, I remember reading an article, marijuana is not a gateway drug. Excuse me? 
My goodness, that's the first thing everybody uses. Then you have the New Age, you have horoscopes, you have yoga. You say, yoga? Yeah. Look it up. We say, why well, I, I, I practice Christian yoga. Who do you think came up with that phrase? <laughs> think about that. You have crystals, you know, the chakras. All those things are tapping into demons. Folks, I believe anything that will allure you away from the Lordship of Christ to some other spiritual component or spiritual category makes you an excellent candidate for possession. Fortunately for us as believers, um, the scripture tells us that true believers cannot be possessed. We have that safeguard. Uh, 2 Corinthians 6.14 says, Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness? And what communion has light with darkness? And what accord has Christ with Belial or Satan? Or what part is a believer with an unbeliever? And what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God. Do you believe that? You are the temple of the living God. That means I cannot be possessed. If I'm walking with the Lord, I'm born again. I am the temple of the living God. 1 Corinthians 6.19 tells us, Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own, for you were bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and your spirit, which are God's. You are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Light and darkness cannot coexist in this temple. You cannot both be a Christian and possessed by demons. The non-believer cannot say that. You realize that? They're not born again, and they walk in darkness. They are candidates for possession. And what was that like for Mary Magdalene? What was that like for her as she got involved with, with demons and got possessed? What was that like for her knowing that you're alive, but for some reason you're withdrawn to the backdrop, if you will. Like you're in the back and you're no longer in control. You no longer control over the things you say or the things you do. And yet you're alive. What is that like? I don't know. I can imagine her trying to yell for help, but her mouth and her lips would not respond because they were no longer under her control. They were under the control of fallen spirits. I'm sure her relationships with her family and friends were affected. I'm sure the, the more time that went by, the less they saw of her. And I'm sure that she's, seen, she's witnessing this. And she's seeing her relationships fall apart. And her life fall apart. She was living a nightmare. And for me, this was worse than the physical prison. I mean, in a physical prison, at least you're in control, right? She's living in her body, and it's worse than a prison because something else has control over her body. She was living a nightmare with no hope. No hope until Jesus comes on the scene. We're told in John chapter 8, verse 12, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. Jesus comes on the scene and he casts out the demons and light enters in. She's been freed. Jesus takes those demons and he throws them out. And what was that like for her? 
We don't know how long she's been in that state. And what was it like for her to be free? To be free of that. And I can only imagine when she saw her Lord, she loved him all the more. It doesn't appear she had a husband or children. And from what we see, she, she is an immediate follower of Christ. She follows him wherever he goes. Matter of fact, Luke 8 tells us that she, along with several of the other women, uh, provided for Jesus out of their own possessions. They, they ministered to him. They cared for him. Jesus gave her life back, and she loved him for it. You know, um, there are those who try to link the prostitute in Luke chapter 7 with, uh, with Mary Magdalene. Um, you know, the lady who obviously washes his feet with her tears and wipes, uses her hair to, to dry his feet. But I, I, I don't believe that is the case. The narrative in Luke 7 and, and, eight, and chapter 8 are completely different narratives. Um, and why do I say that? Because whenever you run across a prostitute in the scriptures, they're not, they're not named. And I think that's for a reason. You know, God just kind of takes care of you that way. They're not named. So in Luke 7, you have the prostitute. and In Luke chapter 8, you have Mary Magdalene. And I don't think that would be the case there. I don't think he would say, okay, here I, I, I touched this prostitute in Luke chapter 8, I name her. I don't see that. It would be inconsistent. Listen, if, if you don't love the Lord for saving you and touching you, let me tell you, something's wrong with you. The, the gospel has a life-changing power. I've never read in the gospels or in the New Testament of anybody approaching Jesus and, and they're so angered and so incensed that they say, you've ruined my life. You ever read that in the scripture? I have never seen that. I have never seen anybody approach Jesus and say, man, you ruined my life. As a matter of fact, more often than not, they have died for their faith because they believed. He, he has changed their lives. What is your greatest love? What is your greatest love tonight? And secondly, who has demonstrated the most love towards you? And imagine how much God feels about you. You know, I can think of certain instances in my life where people have poured love on me. And I can only imagine the love that God really has for me. He loves us. And Mary loves Jesus. He had delivered her from a very dark place. She's seen him heal the lives of countless people. She witnessed the crucifixion. She felt the earthquake. She saw the sky go from day to night. It got dark, remember, for three hours. And she heard Jesus cry out, it is finished. In a rush, I, I have no doubt that she saw Joseph and Nicodemus take Jesus down from the cross and entomb him. And for the next several days, as everyone is celebrating the Passover... It was with heaviness of heart that Mary is reliving what has transpired the last couple of days. When you see someone brutally executed, you can't shake that. I can only imagine as the last couple of days have come by, she's just sitting there and reliving this moment. And that is very hard and traumatic on a person. And she couldn't shake it. And here we find um, coming, as it were, in the dark, Mary. Unafraid, here she is. At the tomb. 
And I'm sure she couldn't do this one last thing for Jesus. And that was to give him a proper burial. Hey, Sam, do you want to turn the air on now? I'm feeling the heat now. Thank you. Now, John somehow gives us a sense that, uh, that she is here coming to the tomb alone. But that's not the case. In Matthew 28, it tells us that there are other women there. As a matter of fact, one of the things they were talking about was, well, who's going to help us roll the stone away? So the plan was, Mary and the other women are going to arrive at the tomb, and we're going to take the body, and we're going to, we're going to um, uh, anoint the body. And um, I think what happened that morning is, Mary happens to beat all of them there. She is the first one there. And what John does is he, he begins to tighten the lens and his focus is on Mary and not on the other women. And notice here again, verse 1, she saw the stone had been taken away. It's the, it's the Greek word idol. It means to lift up, to cast away, or to place somewhere else. It's been lifted up from the tomb. You know, and as I read this narrative, one of the funny things for me as I read this story is... Where were all the people lined up for the resurrection? You ever think about that? Jesus had been telling his disciples, you know, time and time again, I'm going to die. My, I'm, I'm going to be given over to the chief priests and Pharisees. They're going to, I'm going to be given over to evil men. They're going to take my life. But don't worry, in three days, I'll, I'll, I'll come back to life. I'll come back again. Over and over again. Where is everybody? There's no one there. We talk about an eclipse. We go buy a pair of glasses. We drive all over the nation to get a better view. And here, here's this greatest moment in human history, the biggest event in human history, and it's a no-show. Do you guys find that interesting? Not even his enemies show up. Now, we know from all the other Gospels, the, you know, the chronology is a little different, but in Matthew's Gospel, in chapter 27, verse 62, the chief priests and the Pharisees, they request Pilate to set guards over the tomb, lest his disciples would come at night and steal the body away, right? And so what do they do? They, they set it, Pilate says, okay, we'll give you, we'll give you uh, the guards. Matter of fact, we're going to put a seal. Now, um, Roman law says if you break that seal, it's punishable by death. As a matter of fact, if you broke that seal and you got away, the Romans would look for you. And if they knew who you were, they would kill your family. That's how severe it was. And if, if someone did breach the seal and they couldn't find them, guess what? The soldiers would die as well. So the soldiers have an incentive. No one's going to break that seal. Rome didn't mess around. We know there was an earthquake. We know an angel comes down in all his brilliance and removes the stone out of its place. And we know the guards, when they see the angel, man, they freak out. They say they shake as, as dead men, you know, and, and they hightail it out of there. And apparently when Mary arrives there, all, she's already missed all this. All this has already transpired. She gets there and all that has already taken place. In her mind, all she can think about is someone has stolen the body. Now, bear in mind, Mary didn't go to the tomb assuming she's going to find a resurrected Jesus. Okay, uh, Again, we know from Mark 16.1, the reason why she and the other one were there was to anoint the body of Jesus with spices they had purchased. And notice Mary is upset. She is, she is visibly upset. Notice verse 2. 
Uh, it says here, Then she ran and came to Simon Peter and to the other disciples whom Jesus loved and said to them, They have taken away the Lord out of the tomb and we do not, we do not know where they laid him. What do you mean? What do you mean they, Mary? Who's they? She doesn't know. She goes, somebody, they took the body. We don't know who they are. And we, we, we don't know where they laid him. Who's we? The other women. The other women in the group. Again, she doesn't have the luxury you and I have. We already know the, the end of the story, right? But she's operating in real time. She doesn't know that he's already resurrected. In, in my weird way, I wonder if Mary, you know, she had to go wake up Peter and John. Hey guys, wake up! You know? I wonder if they were asleep. Now, when, when John here says about this, this disciple whom Jesus loved, we know he's, it's a reference towards him. Read John 21. Okay? John 21 tells you he, he's referring to himself, the, the apostle or the disciple whom Jesus loved. And that word for love is the word phileo. It's not the word agape like some of us might think it is. It's the word for friendship or fondness. This is the love that Jesus had towards this, this disciple. He was fond of him, fond of John. Evidently, Mary knew where Peter and John were staying. We don't know how far they were from the tomb. And, and I think to Mary, uh, she, she finds Peter because she still considers him one of the leaders of the group, even after the betrayal. And I wonder about Peter. I wonder what that was like for him after he denied the Lord three times. I mean, we talk about it all the time. We read it all the time. But what was that like for him? I wonder where he disappeared after he vanished into the night. His betrayal or his denial. And I can only imagine as he ran away, you know, weeping bitterly, he's thinking to himself, how, how can I of all people, deny the Lord. Out of all people, out of all the guys, I, was, I said I was willing to die for him and how could I deny him? And he leaves. We don't know what happens from that time until we find him here in John chapter 20. We don't know where he's disappeared to. I don't know if John went to go find him or I don't know if Peter came back looking for John. We don't know. We're not told that. But I'm sure it was with great heaviness of heart that he disappears of his denial for the Lord. And to me, Peter is a great picture of who we are when we fail him. Every time I fail the Lord is because I've denied him somewhere. I've denied him by disobeying his word. Are you denying him tonight? Somewhere in your life, are you denying him? Are you denying his word? Now, Here's a suggestion I have. If you want to stop denying him, you need to ask yourself one question and, and ask the question as if the Lord is asking you this, okay? In that moment where you feel like you're teetering on denying the Lord, you need to ask yourself this question as if he's asking you, do you love me? If Jesus were asking you, do you love me? In that moment that you're, you're in the midst of denying him, I'll tell you what, folks, that's a hard question to avoid. That's a very hard question to avoid. Do you love me? Notice here in verse 3. Peter therefore went out and the other disciple and were going to the tomb. And so they both ran together and the other disciple outran Peter and came to the tomb first. 
And he, stooping down, looking in, saw the linen cloth lying there, yet he did not go in. Here he is, even at 90 years old, John is recalling this story, and he's letting us know that he's faster than Peter. Okay? Now, there are many who speculate that maybe, you know, John was younger than Peter. We don't know that. Um, and I don't think that's John's purpose here. Otherwise, um, he's beating an old man. You know, I tell my kids this all the time. Don't ever take on an old man. Let me tell you why. Because if you beat an old man, all you've done is beat an old man. If, he, if an old man beats you, an old man beats you. you. That's a losing proposition. You cannot win. Okay? So don't take on an old man. You can't. It's a no-win situation. Right, Tony? <laughs> so here they are. They're running through the streets of Jerusalem. They're headed towards the tomb. And there's no recorded conversation as they're headed towards the tomb. John just bolts and Peter is just playing catch-up. And I, I wonder what was going through their minds as they're racing through the streets. You know, what are the thoughts they're thinking? You know, here's Mary. She says he's disappeared. They took the, they took the body from the tomb. Maybe, you know, they're thinking grave robbers. But wait a minute. There's, there's, a, there's the stone. There's, it's sealed uh, with the Roman seal. Who has the authority to, to, to go in there? Only the Romans and the Jews. Grave robbers certainly wouldn't risk their life for that, would they? Or maybe it's a trap. So I can imagine all these things are going through their heads as, they, as they're headed towards the tomb. And notice here, John stoops down and he looks in and he sees the linen cloths lying there. He hesitates. He doesn't go in. And there's a progression that occurs here as he moves into the tomb. John stops at the entrance and he says he stoops down and he looks in, right? And that's the word, uh, Greek word blepo. And, and it's a general word for seeing. He, he sees a cloth as he looks in, but that's it. He doesn't go in. Why doesn't he go in? Maybe because he knows that if he goes in, he'll be ceremonial unclean. Peter, on the other hand, is not so guarded, is he? What does verse 6 say? Then Simon Peter came following him and went right into the tomb and he saw the linen clothes lying there. Peter just blasts right by John. He doesn't care. And, and he doesn't even break stride. He barrels past John right into the tomb. And that's Peter, isn't it? That's him, man. That's so much like us. But I think Peter, again, much like Mary, had, had been enduring with a lot the last couple of days. Especially Peter. And his denial. He had this burden in his heart. This, he had this heavy heart. And I think he is looking for relief of any kind. Any news that would relieve this burden he had. And he comes in and he sees the grave cloth. And however, again, this word is different than the word used for John. Okay? The word is therero. It's where we get our English word for theater. And so here's Peter as he looks inside. And to him it's like a theater. He is gazing. He is assessing. He's processing all this information. And I'm sure as he looks there, he sees everything folded and he's looking at the head, the head covering. It's lying to one side and he's assessing this. And the language suggests that the way the grave clothes were arranged, that the cloths were wrapped the same way they buried him in. Remember, Nicodemus brought 100 pounds of spices, didn't he? So what they do is they, they take, wash the body and they wrap, they, they basically lay you down, put you on spices, pack you in, Okay? Because as the body begins to break down, of course, we begin to smell. What do they see? They, look, they saw what looked like a burrito, man. 
All the spices were there, all wrapped up. And I'm sure as Peter is looking at this, he's thinking, man, a grave robber wouldn't go through the trouble of taking a body and leaving this behind. And as one commentator says, it would be as if the body just evaporated through the cloth and came out. The headband. Actually, the way they covered the head is they would actually leave the face exposed. And that's the way he would find the head, the head covering. Interesting to me. There's no evidence of a robbery or break-in. The angel didn't come down to remove the stone um, for Jesus to come out. He removed the stone so they could look in and see that he is risen. No one steals the body and leaves the cloth in perfect order. There's no time for that. I remember when our home was burglarized. You know, I came home and I said, well, there's a box on the floor. I'm like, I can't believe one of the kids actually just grabbed one of the, our, our jewelry boxes and left it on the floor. It wouldn't, it's reasonable. My wife will tell you, it's not surprising they would. And I go into my bedroom and everything was turned upside down. I think I came home and they, uh, they were still in the house when I came home. And they literally just turned the house upside down. They just, they just blew through stuff. You know, and what do we have? We don't have much. But they know they don't have much time. And because they don't have much time, they just turn everything over. They turn all these things over. And so why would grave robbers just leave the, the grave cloths intact? If you're going to steal the body, you're going to take everything and you're going to go. But the cloths are still there. And I'm sure Peter's assessing this and he's thinking, man, what is going on? Then the other disciple who came to the tomb first went in also, and he saw, and notice, believed. John finally enters the tomb, then it says he saw and believed. Again, the progression of words. The word here is aedo. That means That word means to see and understand. John understood. He is risen. Matter of fact, he is the first person to believe the resurrection. And John is telling us at 90 years old, man, I remember the scene, man. I believed. I believed. It's obvious to him what really took place. And notice, do you notice the conversation that's taking place in the tomb here? You guys notice that? There's no conversation, is there? There are no words. You know, hey, Peter, where's the body, man? Hey, John, look over here. Do you, see, do you think someone came in here? There's no conversation. There's nothing like that taking place. The clothes are still there. The spices are still wrapped up in there. Uh, there are no words. And I think each one of us in our own hearts are presented with the evidence and we too have to make a decision. John believes as he sees. And you know, when you read John chapter uh, 21, actually at the end of John 20, he says, all these things were written so that we might believe. And I appreciate John's honesty here. Notice what he says in verse 9. He says, For as yet they did not know the Scripture that he must rise again from the dead. He's saying, we didn't know the Scripture. We didn't know what it meant. We didn't know that it meant that he would rise again. You know, uh, Psalm 16.10 says, For thou wilt not leave my soul in hell, neither wilt thou suffer thy Holy One to see corruption. A direct reference to the resurrection of our Lord. He was not going to allow the Holy One to see corruption. 
In Luke 24, you guys remember the story. After his, his resurrection, he catches up with two on the road to Emmaus. Right? They don't recognize him because their eyes are, are being restrained. And he asks him this question. He comes alongside, he hears a conversation. He says, hey guys, what are you guys talking about? Well, haven't you heard? I mean, all the news that have happened the last couple of days? And, and they begin to share with him um, all the things that have happened the last couple of days. And, and he said, you know, we, we thought that this man was the prophet and that he was going to redeem Israel. But the chief priests, they condemned him. They, con- they had him crucified. And he died. And then it says in, in Luke 24, 25, Jesus says to them, Oh, foolish ones and slow of heart to believe. Ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? Then it says, and beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. Whoa, mind blown. Mind blown. Could you imagine as he began to give this Bible study? Man, who wouldn't want to be there? Who wouldn't want to be there? You know, unfortunately today, there are many Jews who refuse to believe in Christ. However, there are Jews who believe in Christ today. In Israel. Okay? Uh, They're like Joseph of Arimathea. They're disciples who follow him secretly. Out of fear of persecution. You know, when we were in Israel, uh, our tour guide, um, he he was a Christian. He was a Jew. And uh, at the end of our tour, he sat us down, we're talking, and, you know, just, we're just talking about stuff. And then he says, you know, uh, we'd like to live up in this community over here. And it's a, a newly developed community where, where people are starting to move in. They're, they're starting to uh, finalize some of the stages of construction. And, and he says, yeah, we, we just, we're looking forward to it. Well, why? Well, actually, it's a community of Jewish believers. And he says, the reason is, is that we're so heavily persecuted that is very difficult for us to just maneuver through uh, our society. And I said, that's interesting. So you vet them or they're vetted? He goes, yeah, they're vetted. We have to know they're actually believers to live in this community. Believers in Christ. Interesting. So today, Jewish believers still aren't well received. And here's John telling us at the age of 90 how he was there in the tomb. How he saw all this and he believed that Christ is risen. He saw the empty tomb. He saw it. Then it says the disciples went back to their homes in verse 10. You know what's interesting as well? They leave, right? They didn't go look for Mary. (laughs) You know, Mary tells them, hey, they stole the body. But they didn't go find Mary. They just left. They left her. There's no mention of John telling Mary, hey, you know, I believe. I'll tell you why I believe. You know, and, 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 you know, at least share with her. They left her. They leave and Mary shows up. She catches up. And, and here's Mary. She returns to the tomb. We see her in verse 11. And I'm sure as she arrives, she's thinking, where's Simon Peter? Where's John? You know, and she's an emotional wreck, okay? Where's everybody? Doesn't anybody care? She's crying. Where is everybody? There's nobody there. And she is caught up in this emotion. 
She loves her Lord. Notice that. One person. One lady. There's no one else there. Notice here the, the appearance. Verses 11 through 18. Verse 11. But Mary stood outside by the tomb weeping. And as she wept, she stooped down and looked into the tomb. Notice she's out here standing outside the tomb. And she's weeping. And the word weeping there is not just she's crying. It's actually in the Greek. She is sobbing uncontrollably. uncontrollably. You know, you ever see someone... <laughs> and just their, their body is convulsing. And they just they can't control their sobbing. And her eyes are filled with tears. She is literally sobbing. As a matter of fact, that Greek word is used for the way they wail in the East. During a funeral... Uh, procession. It's the same word used in, in Lazarus' funeral as they mourned over Lazarus. They would shriek. It was a type of shrieking that when you saw it, you felt it. There was an empathy that took place. When you see a mother grieving over, over a lost child or incredibly hurt, there's an impact. And this is the type of sobbing she is going through. She's weeping uncontrollably. She's sobbing. She's in incredible anguish because she thinks that someone has taken his body. She finally stoops in to take a look and notice in verse 13, what does she say? Or see. Then, she, then they said to her, woman, I'm sorry, verse 12, and she saw two angels in white sitting one at the head and the other at the feet where the body of Jesus had lain. And then they said to her, woman, why are you weeping? And she said to him, because they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Notice that she is in anguish, that even the appearance of angels do not faze her. What happened to the soldiers? They ran. Now, I've, you know, again, I'm kind of curious. I'm just thinking out loud. I'm thinking, well, of course. Here's a woman who's been possessed by seven demons. We're two angels to her, right? But I shouldn't say that. I, she, is, she is caught up in anguish. And nothing else matters to her. Nothing. Not even these angels. And then we're told in verse 14, that when she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there and did not know that it was Jesus. Again, they, you know, she answers the angels. And the angels don't have a response. They don't say anything to her. Uh, and I think... I don't think her eyes are restrained. I just think that maybe she's crying so much that she can't even see out of her own eyes that she doesn't even recognize Jesus. Or maybe her eyes are restrained. We're not told. She just doesn't recognize who he is. And notice here in verse 15, Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? And whom are you seeking? She, supposing him to be Jesus the gardener, said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where... You have laid him, and I will take him away. Sorry. So the angel asked, why are you weeping? Jesus actually asked something else. Why are you weeping, and whom are you seeking? Now, I don't think Jesus is torturing her here. Okay. Um, personally, I think he couldn't wait to surprise her. I don't, I don't, I think he was, he was restraining himself because he wanted to reveal to her who he was. You know, in the other three gospels and here, Jesus doesn't appear first to the apostles, does he? 
And he doesn't appear to his enemies. He appears to Mary. Mary Magdalene. The one who loves him dearly. And you notice, uh, from this moment on, Jesus goes about gathering his wounded sheep. He first gathers Mary in the tomb. Then he goes and he gathers the two on the road to Emmaus. And then a week from now, he's going to go gather doubting Thomas. And in John chapter 1, he's going to go gather Peter. And in each of those instances, he, he gathers them exactly where they are at. And he's very personable. And he does that with us. I don't know how you came to the Lord, but I know how he came to me. And I'm sure all of you have a story because he is very personable. And she, supposing he was, again, the gardener, asked him if he had carried him away. And if he did, she was more than willing to carry him away. What an incredible woman. This woman was willing to to go carry a dead Jesus when there are some folks who are unwilling to share a living one. Think about that. She is will. I mean, this woman is just, you know, insistent. She... You're talking about someone who's proactive. I think she would have. I think if they would have found his... She would have carried his body away. Verse 16. And Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him, Rabboni, which is to say, teacher. Jesus calls her by name. And and you know, in Jesus' life, he had many Marys in, in, in his life. And she recognized the way he said her name. And I think it must have been distinct. I think personally, um, you know, if, if she didn't recognize his voice or the, the tenor in which he said it, she would have said, uh, excuse me, do I know who you are? Uh, have we met? You know, but she knew instantly, didn't she? She knew exactly who it was. I think it was the same way he called her when he saved her from her possession. He says, Mary, you're free now. And now he says, Mary. I personally think he probably had a, another sentence behind Mary. But I think he, she didn't even allow him to finish. Again, that's my personal opinion. As soon as he said, he said Mary, she turned around and just grabbed and locked him up. Okay? And she says, teacher or rabbi. And to me, what a great picture of love for the Lord. And I, I personally envy that at times. I envy that because I wish I was more like Mary. Now, again, don't get me wrong. I, I, I love the Lord. But I appreciate her passion for the Lord. She is uninhibited. She doesn't care if people think she's weird. She knows who He is. She knows what He freed her from. He changed her life. Nothing else matters to her. And I wish I was more like her. In the way she just loves her Lord. We, we need to be more like Mary. You know, it, it reminded me of a, of a story that I read of uh, a gal who had a tumor in her face and um, the doctors went in, they were able to take the tumor out and, of course, they had to, they had to do some cutting and, and she, you know, was in her... Uh, after the surgery, they showed her a mirror and, and she asked the doctor, you know, she had this palsy look to her face, to her lips, and she asked the doctor, um, is this going to be permanent? And uh, he says, yeah, it's, we, had, we had to cut some nerves, and unfortunately that's, that's permanent. And the doctor, you know, as he, 
noticed that she didn't say nothing. She was quiet. And he looked around the room and he saw a bunch of people in there. He didn't know who they were. And then here's this young man and he looks over and, he's, and he gets up to her. He says, you know, I kind of like it. It looks cute on you. And he leans over and he begins to kiss her. And he understood that's, that must be her husband. And he couldn't help but to look as he turned and he noticed that he formed his mouth like her mouth. Because he, he, he noticed that, you know what? Love will do that. That was his impression of, of what was going on. That her husband didn't matter because he loved her. And I, I look at Mary, and Mary's no different. She doesn't care about anything else. She's devoted to her Lord. That's why I envy her. Again, no inhibitions. She don't care if people look at her weird. We need to be more like her. Notice verse 17. Again, this is... This has been a, a problematic verse for some people, but Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to my Father, but go to my brethren and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father and to my God and your God. Again, problematic verse. Evidently, Mary has a death hold on him. And she doesn't want to let go. And again, some have butchered this verse into saying that Jesus is telling her, hey, you know what? Don't touch me. There are some translations that will, will it'll read that way. Hey, don't touch me. But that's not what the Greek is saying. Because if that were true, then in a few weeks, again, he, he, when his conversation with Thomas, what did he say to Thomas who doubts him? Handle me. Touch me. Put your hand on my side. Or how about the woman in Matthew 28 where they see Jesus you know, after the resurrection and, and they grab hold of his feet and they begin to worship him. He doesn't say, hey, don't touch me. So that's not what he's saying here. Actually, uh, the Greek tense, if you take it at its face value, it's in the present imperative with a negative component, meaning stop doing something. In our context, he's basically saying, stop clinging to me. Let me go because you're killing me. Okay? There's a death hold on him. And I can imagine that's what she is doing. She just will not let him go. He's saying, Mary. And I, I, I believe that he, is, he, is, he doesn't want to crush her spirit. And he begins to tell Mary, Mary. Just let go, Mary. Let go. Okay. He, he says, I have not yet descended to my father. I haven't left Mary. You can let go. And you can tell at that point... I think she settles down. And furthermore, he goes on and he gives her a mission. What does he say? Go to my brethren, right? And say to them, I am ascending to my father and your father, and to my God and your God. Prior to the resurrection, Jesus never called his disciples brethren. Moving forward, he calls them his brethren. Their relationship and our relationship has a deeper meaning now. He calls them brethren because his father is their father. His God is their God. Jesus has paved the way for us where we too can become sons and daughters. Galatians 3.26 says, For ye are all children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. 2 Corinthians 6.18 says, I will be a father to you, and you shall be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty, that you and I could be his children. Well, I don't feel like one of his kids. Yeah, neither do I at times. Because you think his kids act a certain way, right? But we are his children. 
He loves us. In our weaknesses. In our weaknesses, He loves us. He says, Mary, you can let me go. I haven't left yet. But go tell my brothers I'm ascending. I'm going to my Father and your Father. Your God. My God. He's saying there's a relationship here. And Mary, you notice, she didn't argue. Why? Because love obeys. Love obeys. She didn't question the Lord. She said, hey, where are you going? I want to follow you. Come on, Lord. Don't do this to me now. She simply obeys. And she informs the disciples that she had seen the Lord and told them all the things he had, he had told her. Now, if you read the other gospel accounts, they don't believe her. You find that interesting? She goes back and she tells the disciples and they don't believe her. All the effort that she goes, you know, she, she expends to, to, to talk to them. And, and yet in all that, her faith is not shaken. Why? Because she visibly saw the risen Lord. And no one could take that away from her. You can say, you could talk about theology, you can talk about all these things. She would look at you and go, I don't care what you say. I know the Lord. I saw him risen. Listen, this singular event is the most significant event in all human history. These folks had the incredible privilege. They were in, in the presence of the God-man. They walk with Jesus they had conversations with Jesus. They witnessed all the miracles. But they experienced the greatest of all. They saw the risen Lord. You take all this stuff. They saw the risen Lord with their own eyes. They saw him. And they saw him ascend. Again, John wrote in 20, verse 31. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus Christ, or Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. Amen? All right, let's pray. Father, again, we come to you and just thank you, Lord, for uh, this passage. Lord, that we too, Lord, have a privilege that we've experienced your touch, Lord. That we too can share the gospel, Lord. That we would go out, Lord, and share a risen Lord. And Lord, we just thank you, Lord. We thank you for the work you've done in our life. And Lord, I just pray for everybody here, Lord, maybe those who, who have denied you to a certain extent, Lord, that they would not deny you any further. And maybe there are those here who have who are just not walking right. Or those who just don't know you, Lord. And Lord, that they would just confess your name tonight. And if you're here tonight, and you just, you're up here, and, and, and the Lord's convicting your heart, and you want to accept him, you can just repeat this prayer after me. And by faith, you're accepting Jesus into your heart. You say, Father, I come to you. In Jesus' name. I acknowledge your son Jesus as my Lord and Savior. Lord, fill me with your spirit. And I would walk with you, Lord, all the days of my life. Thank you, Lord. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, God bless you. You need prayer? You have questions? I'll be right up here. God bless you. Have a good evening.